This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. Hey Ben, how's it going? You're looking very pink today. I have my hiking boots on with my pink shirt because I'm breaking them in for my trip. So, hooray! We're just going to cut all that out. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Wednesday, July 17th. My name is Ben Orenstein. I'm here today with CTO Joe Ferris. Hey, Joe. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Pretty good. So how many technical interviews have you done now? Uh, well, I'd say at least four. I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean? I, really, well, I mean, like, uh, as the on the interviewer side. A lot. Yeah. You've been doing this for a while now. Yeah. Um, so ThoughtBot has long had a practice of letting pretty much any developer do a technical interview. And I do a lot of them now as a CTO, but we also have other developers do them. And, you know, I've been at ThoughtBot for almost six years. So I've been doing them for almost six years, first as developer and now as CTO. So I would say a lot. Mm. Can you walk us through a typical technical interview? Yeah. So um, besides the, like, small talk and sort of, I don't know, other stuff. It's sort of broken down into three phases. The first is we have a standard set of questions that help us get uh, a typical baseline. So it makes it much easier to compare uh, one interview to the next if the beginning is all exactly the same. Um, But obviously the more interesting things vary depending on their answers, you know, and things like that. So then the second stage of the interview is uh, we ask questions based on their answers to the first set of questions. And then the third stage of the interview is a collaborative code review discussion. So before we actually do the technical interview, we ask everybody to submit code samples, which we review beforehand and make notes and see things we'd like to talk about. And part of the idea of the code review is that, you know, we identify strengths, but also weaknesses, and we want to give people a chance to prove their strengths and disprove their weaknesses. So we don't want to just like see something and say like, oh, they don't know how to do this. We want to give them a chance to talk about it and explain why, you know, because you can't really understand everything just glancing at it. I actually did it. remember doing a technical interview with you, and one of the questions that we asked a lot was, uh, is there anything you would change about this code, asking about their code? Because like, there's some things that we saw were like, eh, that's not so great. And like, you give them a shot at, you know, at least identifying some things they think might be issues. Right, exactly. So where is the, do you, have, do you have a sense of like where the bar is for you? Like you sort of have this like yes, no flag in your head. Like where could you put into words where that bar is roughly? So that's, I mean, it's a really complicated <laughs> formula that I don't have, uh, I don't know. I don't think I could explain to somebody else exactly what my barometer is of how I decide to hire somebody. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the interview, I try to give somebody an opportunity to show that they are like talented and you know excited about working. And at the end, I want to be impressed with their talent and be excited about working with them. And so that's like, I guess if I had to say two criteria, yes or no, it's going to be like, I gave them an opportunity. Did they convince me that they were you know good to work with? Which is sort of obvious, but it's also... I don't know, I think important to keep in mind. Totally. It's interesting what a large percentage like passion can play in that, like beyond technical competence. I think that's something that a lot of people leave out. And it's actually, besides ThoughtBot, that would be my chief complaint about everywhere I've ever worked, is that um, people and projects become complacent, where it's like, oh, well, this is working okay, so we don't have to try that hard anymore. And I really don't ever want to do that personally, and it's much easier to stay excited and keep things interesting if you're working with other people that feel the same way. So how do you feel about uh, brain teaser type questions? Oh, like, okay. 
So we used to do these in our interviews. Like when I interviewed at ThoughtBot, I was asked about um, Fibonacci and a few like big O type questions. And we've since stopped that. Um, I don't think it actually tells you much about somebody's ability to do what we do mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Like, for example, we don't typically write algorithms. Like the correct answer to like, how do you implement Fibonacci is like, look on Stack Overflow. If somebody's doing anything besides like looking up the answers to pre-solve problems, then they're not very good consultants, right? Um, but I think the other thing is that like those questions are sort of like intellectually intimidating right off the bat. So like the first question that I was asked in a technical interview is like, how would you implement Fibonacci and Ruby and make it like O of N or something? And I was like, whoa, geez, guys. Yeah, it's kind of confrontational. Right. So um, these days we find it's better to ask like typical, like really straightforward Rails questions that most people at least have some answer to and see what their solutions are like. Mm -hmm. And as they get more comfortable, see what interesting tangents they go on, right? Because it's like the stuff that's between the lines is actually interesting. And so you, you said the questions are actually Rails focused. The first, the standard set of questions are all Rails focused. And that's how we try to set the tone. Um, and then there are obviously other skills that are important to us. Like every developer at ThoughtBot is a full stack developer. And when I say that, I mean that like they need to be able to handle all of the technical aspects of a project. So doing the Rails stuff, they'll need to know a little bit of SQL or at least understand the, you know, the databases. Um, we use some amount of JavaScript on almost everything now, right? We also need to have some Unix-C sort of like DevOps tools because we don't actually deploy DevOps. We need to at least be able to get things on Heroku and understand like what look at the logs means, that kind of thing. So um, we want to look and see how many of those skills people already have, right? So if there isn't any inkling during the early stage that they understand JavaScript or, you know, testing, for example, like surprisingly, we actually don't ask a standard set of testing questions. But if they don't bring it up and they don't, you know, bring TDD into the discussion without us prompting them, then we'll bring it up in the second phase. So what, what, so what is the second phase? The second phase is where we deviate from the standard set of questions. So first we try to, you know, we have an even baseline that gives us a, a solid place for comparison, like where did you start off? Uh, but it also gives people an opportunity to, they get to set the tone for the interview since the questions are so like kind of open and almost boring. You know what I mean? Like they're not very interesting. You know, like, oh, good question. That's an, I've never thought of that one. Yeah. It's like stuff you've probably solved before if you've written a few Rails applications. Right. But it gives people an opportunity. Like if they're actually, I don't know, interested people, then they refuse to just answer a boring question. They'll be like, oh, but I can throw this in there. And they'll talk about like different experiences they've had solving that same problem. And so it gives people an opportunity to, the interviewee gets to set the tone for the interview. And then we can sort of follow their lead. How do you frequently find yourself sort of coming to an early conclusion and then reversing it as the interview goes on? I try really hard not to do that. Uh, it is difficult not to, right? Like occasionally somebody answers a question where it's like, ah, I disagree with you so much. But that's, I think the only times where I would, there have been maybe a couple interviews where very early on I've been like, okay, the rest of this is about being respectful. And that's only when somebody just clearly doesn't know how to program at all. And somehow I have completely misjudged what they told me before. And that very rarely happens because, you know, we ask for code samples. We do a, a non-technical interview first where you can usually tell if somebody is like at least a programmer. And so in that case, it's like pretty quickly you can say like, this guy doesn't know what a controller is. He doesn't know what HTML is. Like clearly he can't work here. Yeah. And so I've had a couple of those scenarios. But I think the other ones that are hardest for me are when people have um, 
philosophical differences, and I know it's going to be difficult to disprove them in an interview. Like if somebody, for example, says like something is good enough, and you don't have to care about refactoring it in a certain situation. If I really disagree with them, it would be like, I don't know. I just don't know if I feel comfortable bringing in that attitude. Right. But I still think it's good to try and keep an open mind in the end and balance everything. Cause sometimes, you know, like you may misinterpret them and it's easy to say like, okay, they said that about that situation. And so you assume that's just who they are. They don't refactor, but then maybe it's just, they interpret the situation differently. And so as you go through the interview, new situations come up and they surprise you. Right. So I try not to get too set in my decision early on. Do you think you've gotten better at interviewing over the time? I really hope so. I think so, because I think... um, So outside of the technical interview, we have a few phases to the interview process as well, and that's evolved over time. But uh, it's been pretty stable for at least a couple of years now, where we do uh, a code sample, a non-technical interview, a technical interview, and some pairing. Mm-hmm. And these days, very few people get to the pairing portion of the interview and don't get hired. And that didn't that wasn't always the case, which I feel like indicates that we've gotten better at those earlier phases of the interview, that fewer people slip through to that last phase. So I, I think I'm getting better and other people are getting better and our process is getting better. What kind of things uh, do end up sinking people that actually make it to the pairing? Um, so I think you can get an idea of somebody's abilities by talking to them and doing a technical interview, but you can't actually get a good idea of somebody's workflow and whether or not they would work well with your flow. Like you can get some idea, but sometimes when you see somebody actually working, it either like so solidly confirms your view of them. Like you see a guy hacking the same way you hack, doing interesting things where you're like, oh man, I have to ask him about this after the interview. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's like definitely hire this guy. And then sometimes you see things where it's like, really? Like, you don't know how to use the command line? Like, that doesn't come up in an interview, right, necessarily? I mean, I guess we could add a ton of questions to try and figure that out. But it's like, you seem really lost. So, like, when you actually see somebody doing their job and not talking about it, sometimes people just look lost. And it's like, uh, I'm not sure how you got here. That's kind of the beauty of pairing, actually, I think, is, like, it's you can't really hide things. It's so obvious because there's so many parts to the process of actually getting work done that reveal someone's level of ability that it, there's nowhere to hide. Right. And there's a nice thing about um, the Rails environment where there are so many conventions and there's so much, like, I don't know, common knowledge that you usually can jump in and at least do something on the first day if you're, like, really good at what we do, right? So it's not like, I don't know, if you were in really advanced chemistry, you probably have to read a bunch of literature before you can even really follow the interesting discussions, right? But in Rails, it's like, there are interesting domain problems and you'll probably have a few special, like, utilities and things, but... Largely, we all speak the same language, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can have somebody come on and actually watch them contribute meaningfully in a few hours of pairing before you hire them, which is pretty awesome. And, and a testament to Rails, I think. Definitely. And I think um, a testament to Rails, but also a testament to the community. Because I know it's been tried before. Like People try to set good conventions and best practices, but it's sort of, um, it's sort of amazing how much people drank the Kool-Aid, <laughs> maybe in a good way, in Rails. At least it helps in this context. So we, as a company, are now, at least in Boston, I'd say, at like 95% Vim. Is anybody not using Vim? Maybe Matt? I think just Matt. And that, that includes our designers as well. Yeah. So that's out of like 35 people, I think, in Boston. We have 34 using Vim. Right. So it's almost, it's almost become, not like a requirement, but like I imagine your pairing day would be a heck of a lot worse if you've never used Vim before. 
So that's actually, uh, that's interesting. And that comes up a lot with apprentices. So like we do technical interviews for full-time people, but we also do all of this for apprentices. And frequently apprentices are newer, so they don't know Vim, right? Like they probably are using their first editor. And for a lot of people, that's not Vim. Um, and I've found that during the pairing phase, you can actually get a really good idea of a person's like ability and interest and in learning something and mastering it by watching whether or not they go like, really, I just, I, you know, I can't, you know, like if they apologize for it constantly or they're like, I would really rather use another editor. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. But if they like sort of fight through it and are interested in like, okay, maybe this is interesting. I think that's a really powerful message people can send. It shows a little intellectual curiosity. Right. Well, and, you know, one of the other things you can try and get a sense from an interview about whether or not somebody is a good learner and interested in improving. Right. But you can actually see them do it. It's the, I, I personally think that's pretty easy to fake. Like you basically just have to get yourself to act excited and be curious about whatever you're asked during the interview. But when it comes to like actually sitting down and doing things, you can sort of see people's natural response to challenges. Is it like, ah. Oh, man, but, you know, I was really hoping that I had this figured out. Or is it like, oh, that's interesting. I remember being struck kind of early on when I started working here at, it seemed like people were really good at not getting blocked. It was like, okay, well, this isn't working, but how can we kind of go around this or under this or over this? And I think that's kind of like manifested in like, okay, you have to use an editor that you're not very familiar with. Can you keep making progress anyway? Right, exactly. Um, And that's something you can really see during pairing. And I guess what I'm saying is that I definitely wouldn't screen somebody during an interview like, ah, you don't know Vim? Like, what's wrong with you? I wouldn't do that because like if they're interested in learning the editor, that's great. But also like I'm sort of excited about having diversity. I'm really excited in a way that we all use Vim, but I'm also sort of like terrified of it because it means like if there are other new things that are interested in improving, like nobody's learning them. Right. So like you can get a lot of momentum with something like that, but you also don't get a lot of agility. So sometimes I wish we had like at least one guy that was like really killer with Emacs, Mm -hmm. like pulling in ideas from that community and, you know, have you ever ended an interview early because it was sort of like unsavable? It's clearly not the right person. Uh, I don't think I would have. I don't. I don't think I've ever said like, no, I'm sorry, this is over. This is just ridiculous. But um, good interviews definitely tend to go longer than bad interviews. I think because, like, like I said, I think people that express interest and go on tangents and like ask questions are really engaging, and you want to hire them. Whereas like people who are like, no, sorry, I don't know. Like, not, like you don't hire them, but also it just doesn't take as long, right? They admit their ignorance quickly and just... Well, they don't care. If somebody just doesn't care, like, uh, no, don't know the answer to that one, don't want to figure it out. If somebody works through a problem, like, even if they don't know the answer, that takes a lot of time, right? Right. And so that's a better interview, even if they, they didn't understand. Are there uh, areas that you see people uh, flub a lot? Like, are there common failures or is it sort of all over the place a spectrum of things that people happen to not know or not understand yeah i think it's pretty diverse actually i found in general that most people have a harder time with the first questions which makes perfect sense like everybody is nervous during an interview like i get nervous for people in an interview um which is you know we always start off with a couple of like fairly easy questions just to like get people's brains in that area and sort of get used to talking confidently about the subject but like even with those questions like even though they know the answers and they do give a correct answer, I, I find that people don't do as well with it. Like they seem just their voice sounds less unsure. They seem uh, less confident to talk about other things that they're interested in or ask questions or, you know, anything. Whereas like by the fourth question, like good people are usually a lot more engaged. But so the, the, the areas where they're less 
knowledgeable tend to be spread out pretty evenly. Yeah, I think the the knowledge areas are totally variable. I think it's just like earlier people have trouble. Do you think it's possible to do prep work for an interview meaningfully? For somebody to like game the interview? Not even game. Well, I guess it's like kind of is gaming, but it's like, okay, I know I have an interview in two weeks, like to specifically go out and try to spend time studying things that might come up or something like that. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I don't think you could do a great job of it because like, we're obviously looking for a certain skill set, right? But the skills we need are very common in the Rails community. Like, there are a lot of people that can do this. The things that we're really looking for are things that you, I don't think, can fake or teach yourself in like a couple of days. It's like, are you interested in learning? Are you good at finding the answer to questions that you don't know yet? Like, sometimes I, I have actually had a few people that during an interview will like, you know, ask them a question. They sort of don't know the answer, and they're like, "Can I like, can I use an editor and work this out? I, I think it'll be easier in code." And I'll be like, "Yeah, absolutely." And then I've had a few people that have said, like, can I look this up on the internet? And I'm like, yeah, that is so your job. You should demonstrate that you can do that. Like somebody that is good at finding the right question and answer on Stack Overflow is totally hireable. So like, I don't think you can fake that. You know what I mean? That sort of, it's like an attitude thing and it's a, it's a learned long-term ability. Like, I think that's the hardest thing for new programmers is like, how do I ask the questions? Yeah. So like if somebody knows how to ask the questions are going to be good and I don't think you can fake that in a day. It's it's interesting that you're you're it's okay to be like I want to look this up. It's like it's not about purely, purely what you've you stored in your brain. It's like your willingness to overcome this problem and and find the answer wherever it might be. Right. Well, cuz there's so much to programming and so many different problems out there like like I said there's a really common understanding in Rails and their conventions and so people are comfortable there. But then beyond that like nobody has memorized all of the APIs. Or like what the side effects are for like there are like sixteen different permutations of like assigning a has one association Rails and will it save? You know what I mean? Like I have to look that up every time, and I'm comfortable with that, and I know how to find the answer. And so I want somebody that's not like when they don't know the answer, being like, oh, I don't know it. What will I do? Like you need people to be able to figure these things out, right? Yeah. And again, I just don't think that's something that you can study for. So do you give people? Uh, do you have feedback, specific feedback to people that don't make the cut? Uh, people ask for it. Um, if people ask me questions like, how did I do on that? Or, you know what I mean? I, I do my best. But it's, um, it's really hard to give that kind of feedback. I've had, I don't think I've had many people that didn't get hired ask me why. Maybe like one or two. And I don't remember what I did in those circumstances. But a lot of people towards the end of the interview, I always give people a chance to you know, like ask questions. And a lot of people will say like, you know, how did I do on that question? Or what would your answer have been to that question? And that probably resp- reflects positively, right? Just the further intellectual curiosity. Yeah, definitely. And especially if like some people ask me my answer and I'll give it to them and they'll be like, no, I think mine was better. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> kind of like that in a way. So you mentioned that we do, um, we ask people to send in a code sample mm-hmm. before they interview. Uh, what kind of things are you looking for in that code sample? One of the best things is, like, right off the bat, what is the format of the code sample? So, like, some people will respond with a snippet of code, which is like, all right. Some people will respond and attach you a zip file, which is like, okay, I have a little context here. But then the ones that I really like, which are getting more and more common, are when people give you a Git repo. Mm -hmm. So, like, just add you to a Git repo or point you to something that's open source on GitHub. And that's awesome. And I think that's one of the really powerful things about our industry is that, like, your resume can be like, it's almost like, you know, you're a designer, you have a portfolio, and that's one of the best proofs of your work, right? Like, versus like, I don't know, if you're a 
if you're a doctor, like you need tons of testimonials and all this kind of like paper credentials that takes like 10 years to build up. Mm-hmm. Like a programmer, like you can go on GitHub, push some stuff and be like, that's what you want, right? There's the code. Um, so that's great. But once you get into the actual code, um, the first thing I do is I use Flog, which is a tool for finding code complexity. And I scan the whole app and lib directories to, to find, try and find the most complexity because I find that's where all the interesting stuff is. Like, that's where the hard problems were, and that's where they tried to solve them, right? And so I go and look in there and um, try to figure out, like, what they did when they were actually confronted with complexity. Because, like, anybody can just take a Rails tutorial and build a few empty models that are like, this belongs to that. That has many of these, right? And that's pretty easy and satisfying. But then you get to those cases that don't quite fit. And so I think that's what's more interesting. What do you do to break up complex conditionals? What do you do when you discover this kind of, I don't know, weird uh, case statement stuff. So um, I think that's helpful. Uh, the next thing I do is I open up um, Flay, which finds duplication, and look to see, I don't know, first of all, how much of that there is. And I think it's really interesting what people duplicate. Like, I wish it worked better for tests, because that's one of the the biggest things that I find that people don't think about is duplicating things in tests. Like, people are so much more comfortable copying and pasting in tests. Hmm. You would never do that in production code. Uh, so that's an interesting thing to look out for for code samples, assuming there are tests, which is another thing that we check for. Have we interviewed people that don't have tests and with code sample? Uh, yeah, definitely. So a lot of the time we'll get things, and this is a tricky one, where people will say, like, I know the correct thing to do, but I'm not allowed to do it. Hmm. And so a piece of advice I give a lot of developers who are in that situation is you need to find another job. Yeah, seriously. But... Like, during an interview, you can't say that because that's what they're doing. Right. They're looking for another job. Yeah. So you can't say, like, oh, you're not allowed to test? Man, you should have found another job where you can test before you applied to this job that you can test in. So, like, you know, hopefully they have some experience on it in the side and understand the fundamentals. I don't know if I could hire somebody that had never done any testing, regardless of the reason. But, you know, a lot of the time we will get code samples and they'll say, like, I know what's wrong with this. I'm not allowed to fix it. And then if they can at least explain it, that's good. You know, but I still get nervous about that because um, sometimes I think it's better to have somebody who didn't know the answer than somebody who knew how to fix something and just didn't care. Yeah. And so if somebody tells you they're not allowed to fix it, it's really hard to tell what they would have done if they were. And like, did you, if you really cared a lot, would you have taken no for an answer and like let someone make you ship crappy code? Right. But I mean, I think the answer is yes, right? Like, even personally, you can't say like, before I had another job lined up, I would have just quit and lived without income for three months because my boss wouldn't let me refactor this method. Like, you can't draw such a strict line in the sand, right? So, like, the person's already looking, like, they know it's wrong, they've looked into solutions, maybe they've tried. Like, usually they can show you some examples of where they have refactored, and they, you know, realize they could never fix it at this position, so they're looking for a new job where they can actually do good work, right? And so it's really hard to look at somebody and say, like, if you really cared, you wouldn't have ever written this code. Like, that's pretty condescending. And I think the truth is, like, I would have done the same thing in their situation, which is, in fact, how I got to ThoughtBot. Okay. So, uh, flog for complexity and then flay for duplication. Right. I think that's a good starting point to figure out what's interesting about a code base. And then I try to just generally understand, like, I don't know, the domain model of the app, if it's an app, what the general purpose is of a library, and whether or not that's, like, well-construed. Like, if I can open the few like conventional rails directories like app models app controllers the roots and figure out what your app does i think that's pretty good right 
if all of the words are like nonsense words or too generic, then that's not a good sign. I don't think I ever evaluate apps at that level. Like look at all the names of the files in that directory. Mm-hmm. I think it's important because like naming is one of the hardest problems, like, like figuring out how to convey what something is for to a developer and to yourself because like we're all you know linguistic people like if you don't have a good name for something it's harder to get the concept in your mind and so if people can't do that if they've shown you like they have a directory full of like generic words and you know nonsense then probably they aren't good at that particular problem and so do you sort of build up a list of questions based on the your discovery process yeah so during the code review before I ever do any other type of interview, I make a list of notes for things that are like things I want to give them an opportunity to prove or disprove. So for example, if I don't see tests, then I will make a bullet and say like, I want to ask this person about testing, obviously. And if I see duplication, then I want to give them a chance to get out the duplication. And that, that gets kind of tricky. Like phrasing those questions is hard without giving away the answer. So like you could say like, I noticed there's some duplication here. Would you extract that? Obviously, they're going to say, good idea. But you can try and do things like, is there anything you'd change about this file? Mm-hmm. Is there anything you remember being a problem in this app? Like, what were your greatest challenges? Do you ever have people uh, refactor the code on the fly or sort of pretend to refactor it in the interview? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's we actually encourage that. Like, I try to push that forward. Usually when we're looking at code, we're looking at it either in my editor or their editor. And so if it's a simple enough example, like, um, you know, a method needs to be broken up. If they start to explain it to me, sometimes I'll be like, okay, can you show me? Because that, you know, it can, be, it can be easy to talk about code in some circumstances, but it can be really hard to talk about exactly what you mean. Okay, well, I think that uh, just about wraps things up. So uh, thanks for coming down to the studio. Always a pleasure. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 59. 59. Today's podcast was recorded by Mike Manor, edited by Igor Stolarski, and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.